Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Bibles to James chapter 1. Tonight we have a study that I am positive there's not a person in here who won't be able to take something home, take something on the road, take something with you. This is one of those passages that the Lord will repeatedly use in your life and in the life of others as we look at temptation and the Christian. When we use the word temptation, we need to be very, very, very specific and very careful because temptation and test and trial are not the same things. And so now James is going to use this time to speak to us about something that we all face that every last one of us will have to deal with pretty much every moment of every day for the rest of your life while you're here on earth. And that's the issue of temptation. Here in verses 13 to 16, just four verses, but packed with power, packed with usefulness and application, and packed with the truth that we need to hear Some of you are not going to like what I have to say tonight. Some of you are going to say, oh, here he goes again, that Bible thing. Some of you are going to go, oh, that's what's wrong. Some of you are going to go, that's what's going on with my kids. Some of you are going to say, that's the issue in my marriage. But this passage is for all of us, and all of us need to hear it. So would you pray with me? We'll pick up here in verse 13, down to verse 16, and temptation and the Christian. Father, we thank you that there is no temptation. We've already seen in the book of Hebrews, but that which is common to man, and in it there is a way of escape. Lord, there are things in our lives that are certainly attractive. There are things in our lives that we have propensities to. There are things that we have in our lives that we have predispensations to. Lord, there are things that we are predisposed to. There are things that are the issues of life and living and things that are in our homes that are negative and bear on us. But Lord, we pray that we'd have the right understanding of dealing with temptation in our lives, and we pray that you'd speak to us through your word, instruct us, and help us, Lord. Help us to be victorious, in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 13, here it comes, let no one say when he or she, the he there is meaning mankind, he or she is tempted, I am tempted by God. Let's stop right there. That is an absolutely critical issue in our society right now. 
because along with being tempted by God, we are tempted to insert genetics, predispositions, predilections, things that one might gravitate towards, things that are environmental. All of those things, God obviously being sovereign, has control over. And so the issue here is not if we're going to be tempted, but what do we do when we are tempted? Let no one say, when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and here it comes, nor does he himself tempt anyone. In other words, there is not a thing in your life which is not able to be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work that God wants to do in you if we submit to the power of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, God's not sovereign. Now, notice what I did not say, that it won't be hard it won't be difficult, or that you will have victory permanently or perfectly. But victory is available in the life of the believer because God doesn't tempt anyone. And so the only one that tempts, we're going to find out, is the devil. And the devil is, to the believer, a defeated foe. Amen? Because of the power of Jesus Christ and the blood of the cross... There now in the life of a believer should be nothing that we are so tempted by that we cannot have victory over it. It's what the Bible plainly teaches. God doesn't tempt us. That means he's not going to put you into a situation whereby you are unable to be victorious. But each one, here it comes, is tempted when he or she is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Nail something down. Temptation itself is not sin. Did everybody get that? Temptation itself is not sin. It is a pull. It is a gravitational force. It is a psychological desire. It is many things, but temptation itself is not sin. And here's how we know that. Jesus, a.k.a. our Savior, the Holy One, who was fully God and fully man, was tempted. Matthew 4, verse 1, and then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice what it says, that the Spirit actually directed Jesus into the heart of the storm of temptation. But the Spirit didn't tempt Jesus, but brought Jesus to a place where he was going to be tempted. 
God sometimes allows us to be pushed and prodded and poked and placed into places that we are going to be tempted for the simple purpose of hardening us towards that sin, enabling us, causing us to have strength to give us the full victory over those things as we've already learned here in James chapter 1. That when we have perseverance, when we go through those things patiently, when those things end their work, they leave us complete and lacking nothing with regard to those things which we might be tempted by. So sometimes the Holy Spirit does place us in those spots where we are going to be tempted, but the Holy Spirit's not doing the tempting. It's just giving us an opportunity to then pass a test. This is where these words need to be very clearly delineated in your life. Who was he tempted by? Tells you, the devil. Temptation is always from, at its root source, the devil. It doesn't necessarily mean that the devil causes every temptation, but behind every temptation is his influence. Temptation is devilish, demonically inspired. Hebrews chapter 2. We've already been through this passage speaking of Jesus, for in that he, that he in Hebrews 2.18 is Jesus himself, has suffered being tempted. A plain statement in Hebrews 2.18. And he is able to aid those who are being tempted. So there it is again. Jesus has been through it, knows what it's like. He himself had it happen to him. And Jesus was without sin. Amen? So you understand what we're saying here, what the Bible plainly teaches. It is not a sin to be tempted because Jesus was tempted. The Bible says so and was yet without sin. So temptation itself is not the issue. It's what you do with temptation that is the issue. Again, speaking of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Therein lies the problem. Our weakness where? In our humanity, in our flesh, in our life, in our living, in our mental acuity, in the psychology of your upbringing, and all of those things. We are weak in our flesh, but we are mighty in the power of the Holy Spirit that is brought to us by our relationship with King Jesus. But was not always tempted as we are, and yet without sin. So there are your texts, which you can just pull out and say, anytime somebody says, well, The devil made me do it. You can say, oh no, he didn't. The devil did not ever make any believer do anything. He doesn't have that power over you. But he can bring you right to the door. And there's the problem. The devil cannot force you to sin. He cannot create situations that are so pervasive and overpowering that you are left with no choice but to sin. But he can sure make it difficult. He can bring you right up to that point. In other words, when you really look at what's being said here, 
is temptation is only the mental side of this and the physical enticement. That could be your hormones, that could be your mind itself, which is nothing but a computer made out of meat. There are all kinds of things that play into this particular situation, but you are never going to be into into a situation as a believer that you are incapable of escaping the temptation. You may not always be successful, but in Christ you are more than conquerors through him who loves you. Amen? And that means over sin itself. Death was defeated, sin was defeated at the cross of Christ. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now resides within you. The question is, are you going to use it? Are you going to wield that power effectively? The president carries with him a suitcase that's affectionately known as the football. That football carries the nuclear launch missile codes for the nuclear missiles that we possess as a country. It takes the authentication of a general and the president himself and two keys. Inside of there, that power is useless without the keys. You could launch an all-out nuclear war capable of destroying the earth many times over. But you got to have the keys. Without the keys, without the codes, without that little flip book that opens up and says, here's the launch codes for today, they're changed every single day. So no one has them in advance, but you have to have access to the power. As a believer, you have access to the nuclear launch codes to attack the devil's battlefront. The question is, do you use them? And so here in James chapter 1, we find some tools that we're going to highlight today. And the first thing that we can see is the problem is the sin that is in us. So the sin that we commit is actually on us. Let's be really definitive here. Sin is an extremely serious business. It's universal to man and it's deadly. The consequences of it, the wages of sin is death. Amen? Is that pretty serious? In Adam all die. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why we need to be saved in the first place. The wrath of God abides on ungodliness in all of its forms. And so sin is deadly. So don't you think that the devil would be the first and foremost authority on how to entice you to sin? Because sin brings death. It brings physical death, it brings moral death, it brings spiritual death. And so sin is serious business. Sometimes we think about sin from the prospect, it's, well, it's no big deal. I've been saved by grace through faith, that not of myself is a gift. You know, I'm a Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 guy, and I am. But that doesn't give us the right to flirt with sin. Flirting with sin is deadly and dangerous. And so James begins by refuting an error here, a theological one. One that people have held throughout the centuries. 
Well, I was tempted. God allowed this to happen. He's sovereign. Exactly how I began tonight's study. Well, if God's sovereign, he could have stopped that from happening. The only problem is James refutes that outright. No one is tempted by God. So whatever the situation is, and whatever the temptation was, you didn't get to the point of temptation from God's doing. You may have been brought to a situation where there was a choice, but the temptation itself didn't come from God. That's on you. And we can see this in the life of Adam and Eve, the very first people who sinned, amen? Isn't it neat that the very first people we meet in the Bible were sinners? You should say yes. Why? You, me, us, we're all sinners. We all need a Savior. We all have the same problem. We have the same propensities. We may not have them in the same measure. We may not have them to the same degree, in other words. But every person in this room is prone to sin. You were born that way, in that sense. There are no perfect people. There are some people who are morally better than other people. And there are people who are morally worse than other people. But the problem is the sin that dwells in us. In us dwells no good thing, and that's speaking spiritually. We can do good things, but in us is an innate nature towards sin. You can see that in Eve's response. Eve was tempted, amen? But how did she get to the point of temptation? Had she not been warned to stay away from that particular tree? Oh, yes, she had. But what does she do? She flirts with sin. She flirts with temptation. She herself allows her desires to go rampant for a couple of minutes, and before you know it, she's standing there looking at the tree going, Wow, this is awesome. Then what happens? The devil goes, she's standing at the tree going, Wow, this is awesome. And so the devil goes, you're right, it's awesome. It's going to be so amazing. You're going to have the knowledge of good and evil. You're going to be like God. In other words, it's going to feel good. You're going to get something you never had before. The serpent beguiled me are Eve's actual words. That word beguiled is interesting. It means to use craftiness and persuasion to fool or deceive. So Eve was deceived. It's not a natural propensity for women. Just let's square that away. Eve caved in. Inside of her was a sin nature, necessary for the love that God gave them to be real, by the way. If you don't have the right to choose whether you're going to love God or not love God, then you don't love God. God just forces you into a situation. The love is meaningless. So there had to be a real ability to sin, exactly as there was in Jesus' humanity. Jesus had to have the ability to sin but was without sin. He had the same exact flesh, carne, as you and I. But he was sinless. So here comes Eve, model for us. 
she sins, what does she do? She blames the devil. Adam comes along, he's no better, he sins, what does he do? Blames Eve. What do we see in that model? That we are prone to do what we're told not to do, we're prone to be deceived by the enemy, and we're prone to blame other people for our sin. We want to say, well, I just couldn't help myself. It was, in Adam's case, the woman you gave me. In Eve's case, it was a snake who beguiled me. And you could fill in the blank in your own life. The fact of the matter is, temptation comes from all kinds of sources. But behind all temptation is one who desires for you to fall into that temptation and then let it give birth to sin which will bring forth death of some kind in your life. Without Christ, it brings forth both physical death and spiritual death. And so God allows us to be tested, but God never tempts us himself. He tests us to prove us, to try us, to make us, mold us, shape us, perfect us, but the temptation you face, which is always towards evil, are from the enemy. Satan is nefarious. He, he was previously a cherub. He was part of the worship team of heaven. But in his twisted mind, he curses God. And now he's trying to get us to follow him. It's no more complex than that. The whole goal of temptation is to get you to go against God and towards the enemy. That's it. Sometimes we make it so complex that we start to dwell in those areas that we shouldn't live. James goes on to refute further this error. Why? God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt any man. The Greek word that's here is very interesting. It means that God is incapable of being tempted. In other words, there's something in his nature that will never allow God, not God the Father, not God the Son, not God the Holy Spirit, none of the triune Godhead will ever be tempted by sin because they do not have any capacity to be attracted by it. It's an impossibility in their holiness. Hence the reason that Jesus ultimately, relying on the Holy Spirit to empower his flesh, his flesh didn't give in to it either, as a man. And so this Greek word, it actually seems to indicate that it's like two of the same poles of a magnet. They do what? They repel each other, right? So if you, if you take God and sin, they repel each other. You can't force them together. You can get them real close. But God can't dwell in the presence of sin. So he'll never, ever, ever, ever be tempted by sin. So thereby, he would not even know how to tempt you to sin in that sense. He knows what tempts you, but the mechanism, God's incapable of embarking on that journey. Paul 
tells us in the Old Testament the Israelites were, were tested by God. But it was actually their wicked behavior that became the problem. And so just like if you were to take a magnet, and I had one up here, and I, I took a piece of gold or silver or lead, right? nothing's going to happen if I put a magnet next to it. Why? Because it does not have the same nature as the iron the magnet's made out of, and so they're not attracted one to another. It's an impossibility. Put iron there, they'll stick together. They share a nature. We find sin attractive because we share a sin nature. So sin that's in us, which is exactly what James says here, we find attractive because it's already there. The magnetism of that sin is increased by the amount of time that you put in dwelling in it. So if you want to be victorious against sin, you have to repel the sin just like God's character repels the sin. That's why growing in Christ is so essential to living a life that's sinless. If you grow in the nature of man, if you fill your head with garbage of this earth, then guess what? You're going to be more attracted to sin. If you fill your life with the character and nature of Christ, you are going to be repelled by sin. Sin is not going to be attractive to you. And I know this sounds overly simplistic, but it is that simple. If you fill your life with the garbage of this earth, the more garbage you put in, the more garbage you will desire. And the same is true with the glory of God. If you put the glory of God into your life, you will desire greater and greater glory, which is actually God's plan for your life. That's what he wants. We go from glory to glory. Amen? Glory of salvation, the glory of sanctification, ultimately the glory of glorification itself when you're in heaven. But along the journey, we can put little commas in there and we can put a little chunk of dirt in there. Sin. God is a holy God. And just as a snowflake has no chance of getting anywhere near the sun, so God has no chance of getting anywhere near sin. So he's not interested in seeing you engaged in sin or me engaged in sin. So where does that temptation arise from? Where does it come from? What is the pathway to sin? James points out three very specific parts here. I'm looking around. This is going to get a little PG-13, so just beware for little ears, and I'll keep it in that vein. But when you think about the pathway to sin, it kind of helps us to understand that sin has a mother, sin has a father, and there is a reproductive process for sin. There is something that happens. The father of sin, the father of all evil, is the devil. So there's your father of sin. But the mother of sin is actually lust, and that part is within you. And when I use the term lust, and when the Bible uses the term lust, it is not necessarily inclusive of, 
of just all things sexual. It actually means a very strong, pervasive desire, primarily psychologically, to draw you towards something that's actually dangerous for you. So you can lust after money. You can lust after drugs and alcohol. Of course, we assign it generally to sexual relationships. There is a place that most people actually look at it, and unfortunately, the world actually considers lust to be a good thing. You can go to classes on how to lust better. I encourage you not to take that class. But if you look at this from a pragmatic way, and from a reproductive way, before a baby can be born, the mom and the dad's specific DNA have to come together, don't they? They join in the womb. And once that happens... What happens? A baby is born. Why is that important to this particular conversation? Because on one hand, you have the father. On the other hand, you have the mother of sin. And until those two get together, until the desire, the innate external sexual or whatever kind of lust there is, comes in contact with the internal until the two parts get together, no sin is born. Temptation is the gap between those two places. Temptation is what happens before it becomes an embryo of sin. In that gap is the time in which you can do something about it because once they get together... James says, sin is birthed. And once it's birthed, it grows. And once it grows, it brings forth death. You get the principle. There is a definite pathway towards sin through temptation. And the womb, where this happens, is your human will. That's where this whole process takes place, which is essentially your mind. You have decisions to make as to whether you're going to take that temptation which is external from the enemy and the lust which is internal, which is inside of you and in your mind, in your will, by useful action, are you going to allow them to come together? You see, you can see something and not do something. But if you see something and dwell on it, and whether that's you love money and you go buy a, you know, some guy leaves a cart of money out in front of a bank and you're struggling with the lust of money and you walk by it, where your victory is won is when you see it, you go the other way. But if you go over there and go, wow, (laughs) yikes, those are... Stacks of $100 bills. You look around. A big stack. Hmm. And I have not practiced this. They won't miss one. They'll never even know. Just so you know, there's nothing you will ever do for the rest of your life that isn't on video camera. You see, it's the entertaining of it 
that brings you to the place where the conception of sin can happen. The temptation was there. That wasn't sin. You just saw it. The lust was there. It was innate within you. That wasn't necessarily sin itself. Until you get them together, the desire that's internal and the temptation that's external, when you bring them together in the will of your mind, that's where they give birth. Now you hatch a plan. Now it's like, That's how sin works. That's exactly the process. We can see this in the popular cry of our day that people cannot help themselves. They're born gay. The Bible says that's not true. Because the Bible clearly calls homosexuality sin. And there is no gay gene. There's no, absolutely zero medical evidence that there is a gene that causes you to be a homosexual. It is a choice. You may have a predispensation to it or a disposition to it. You may have things in your life that are external, that are driven you to a place where it might be more of a test for you. But the fact of the matter is... It is a choice. It's something that someone struggles with that they make a decision to go that direction. And often, unfortunately, it might even be your parents that help push you that way. And the same is true for many other behavioral sins that you might engage in. The same thing is true for alcohol. What do you think happens to a 13-year-old whose parents encourage them to drink? What do you think happens to the person who thinks they need to smoke some dope every day? What do you think the kids are thinking? Yes, the environmental pressures. You are helping the enemy cause your children to deal with temptation. And so as they're tempted, when that temptation grows, they have to battle it in their mind. And if they do not have the tools yet to battle in their mind, what do you think happens? They get a little closer and a little closer and a little closer, and before you know it, sin is birthed. And at first it might be a small sin, but it grows. The rallying cry of our day is love is love. That's not true. Love, in the sense that the world knows it, is not necessarily the love that the Bible talks about. Oh, it can be eros, it can be sexual love, but it may not be agape love, self-denying love. Let me help you understand this. The Old Testament, very specifically as far as the moral law is concerned, is accurate, it still stands. So everything that was condemned in the Old Testament is still condemned today. So all of those things which God said were an abomination or a perversion are still an abomination or a perversion today. Why is that important? Because God actually hasn't changed his character in nature. Case in point. In John chapter 8, there's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery, right? You remember what Jesus said to her? Oh, you know, I'm so sorry. Your hormones are just off the chart. 
you've had such a bad life that you can't help yourself. You're just predisposed to have relationships with all kinds of men. What did Jesus say to her? Go and sin no more. And prior to that, he said, I don't accuse you. I'm not against you, in other words. But if you continue down this path, it's not going to go good for you. He, he didn't say, you poor thing, you can't help yourself. He, in essence, said, you have circumstantial control over these things in your life. Go and sin no more. Take control of where the conception of sin happens. When the temptation comes, you need to go the other direction, and you need to not allow temptation and lust to come together. Because if you do, more sin will be birthed in your life. And I love the fact that Jesus says, this is not a condemning moment. The world through sin is already condemned. This is a saving moment. This is telling her what she needs to do. He didn't give her a long list of you know, these things that need to occur in her life. He said to her, you're going to have to take responsibility for your own actions. It's going to be your choice as to whether you sin. You need to make a definitive stand against the sin that's in your life. Church, it is really well past time that we as the body of Christ stop playing with sin. Because it's destroying Christians. We have so danced around sin issues. We've so made it to, well, we don't really know what the Bible... No, we know what the Bible says about these things. We should be doing something with what the Bible says about these things, not trying to explain them away. And here's why. Because in doing that, you cause people to draw nearer to that sin, that point of conception of sin. And the closer and closer and closer you get to it, there is a moment in time when the will and the temptation are so gravitational towards one another, they stick. Stop playing with sin. If you play with it, eventually you're going to engage in it. James reveals this behavioral temptation that we're completely able to resist. And here's how this works. Satan sows a thought. Anybody had that happen to you? Out of the middle of nowhere, some thought darts right into your mind. It's like, wow, where did that come from? That is the moment of victory for the life of the believer. God, that's not from you. I reject that thought. I refuse to entertain it. I want it out of here. Holy Spirit, help. I don't want to think about that anymore. But if you sit there and go, hmm, you know, that's not so bad. After all, those people did treat me kind of poorly. And so you begin to dwell on the past. And you dredge up all the mean things that were said and the mean things that were done. And the hateful, hurtful things that you heard other people say because of that person. And the whole time you are drawing the external temptation to the internal problem, which in this case is anger. And they get closer and closer and closer and closer. And then 
Just imagine what the devil's doing. He sees that process going on, and he sends somebody to push that final button. It's that person that totally disrespected you. And now they've got some new terse comment, and boom, before you know it, a full fit of rage and anger breaks loose in your life. You see, it could have been defeated in the thought life. What you did with the temptation when it came, because the temptation was not sin. God's telling you, don't entertain those thoughts. Don't walk around with that bitterness. Don't engage in that gossip. Don't have that glass of booze. Don't smoke that joint. Don't get in that car with those guys that are drunk. Do not sleep with that guy or that girl. The the devil is going, oh boy, you want to do that. And God's going, no, you don't. And they're apart. They're not together yet. It hasn't happened. It's a battle in your mind. And the Lord's going, trust me, Jeff, you don't want to entertain those thoughts. And when I entertain them, that's when I have problems. When I reject them, that's when I have victory. You see, there is the lewd factor of the temptation. This is where pornography comes in, and I'll just use that example again because it's simple for us to understand. There's an external temptation. I'm assuming that most of you don't have that piped in 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but it is there. And so the lewdness of the devil exists in our world. Anyone that doesn't know that has been asleep for the last 40 or 50 years. So that lewdness exists in our world. And latent within you, in other words, inactive, residing in your humanness, is a propensity towards desiring sexual satisfaction. Those two things aren't together at first. But if you start gravitating towards that person who's promiscuous or towards pornography, or towards something that will draw your attention to a relationship that you shouldn't be in, before you know it, you'll lose the battle. It should have been fought at the thought life, and instead it was entertained. And so the enemy begins to take the internal latent things and combine them with the external lewd things And before you know it, that sin is birthed. In essence, you're lured into it. It, It's as if, just imagine that there's this attempt by the the devil to throw just the right bait at you. You know, if if you're, our whole family, we're all fish, trout fishing nuts. We're crazy. You go in our garage, we have, there's, it's not, it's, pray for us. But we have these cases of lures. And I mean, I've got a tackle box with, that's stacked full of boxes of all kinds of different lures. And it's amazing how often you can throw the same lure into the same hole and catch the same basic fish. And then there's going to be that one. You're going to go and you ain't biting on that one. And you pull out a different color and you throw that in. And that didn't work either. You pull out another color you throw that in there. And that didn't work and you sit there for 10, 15 minutes trying to figure out, well, is it, you know, is it chartreuse, is it purple, is it gold? What color is it that we need to throw today? Don't you think that the devil knows exactly what color lure to throw your way? 
If I, as a human being, can figure out what I need to do to catch trout, which are dumb as hot rocks most of the time, then don't you think the devil who wants to catch you so that you will engage in sin, which will destroy your life, don't you think he knows exactly what to throw in front of you? He can get a nice Facebook instant message for you or a text from an old boyfriend or girlfriend. He can do all kinds of things at just the right moment. You see, because there's something that has to combine with the trout fishing, the trout's got to be hungry. If the trout's not interested in eating, you can sit there all day and throw every lure out and nothing's going to happen. So you have the latent sin that's inside of us, the propensity towards lust, and you have the external factor, which is the bait being tossed at you, And if you sit around hungering all the time, eventually the devil's going to throw something you like right in front of him. You're going to go, oh, that's nice. And then sin is birthed in your life. We have to have a rationalization, but it doesn't take much to get us there. I can rationalize sin. I'm sure you can too. There are things in your life that you are more prone to rationalize than others. Very often, it's areas of hurt, areas of disadvantaged behaviors, things that maybe you've had a family propensity to, things that we might call addictive behaviors. If you have those types of propensities, if you have a family history of addictive behaviors, then you need to be very, very, very careful about the latent things within you and the external things around you because if you allow them to get close, you don't win that battle in the mind. You're likely to give birth to something that you don't want growing in your garden. Where is that sin birthed? It's birthed in your will. That's where it happens. The enemy can't make you go after the bait. He can't force you into it. But he can make it really attractive. So as it was in the case of Eve, what do we see? It's just a suggestion. But it's a strong suggestion. It's a well-placed suggestion. It's a well-timed suggestion. It's an opportune moment for evil to bear fruit. You see, church, sometimes I think we're so lame in our understanding of what the enemy wants to do. The enemy, if you're married tonight, let me just give you a couple of clues. The enemy hates your marriage. If your children are walking with the Lord, the devil hates hates that your family is walking with Jesus. If you are a believer at work and people know it and you have a ministry of just being an encourager, the enemy can't stand it. He hates that. If you have a job where you help other people, the devil hates the fact that you help other people. So what do you think he's cooking up? He's going to try and ruin your reputation. He's going to try and get you to engage in the same stuff that they're engaged in so that you will no longer have a witness before those people. And so he's going to tempt you 
to join them. That's his plan. It's not complex. And so he's going to send you an evil suggestion. Then he is going to give you a demonic insinuation. That insinuation is usually going to go something like this. Well, you know, you'll, you'll feel better if you just do this. Or you'll have a better life if you engage in this behavior. Or you're kind of, you know, you deserve this. And God's, you know, your God's not letting you have this fun. Isn't that what he did to Eve? He has not changed his tactics. He still works exactly the same way. He's going to feed your mind a suggestion. Then he's going to make an insinuation about the suggestion that you'll be better for it or it'll somehow fill a need in your life. There's going to be some benefit temporarily to you. The devil will insinuate that that's what's going to happen. And then you're going to join in in rationalizing it. Well, I deserve it. I can't tell you how many people have come to me. Well, you know, when I get home, I just have to have a drink. My job is tough. That's a rationalization. That is, God's not sufficient, so you need to stick your head in a bottle. That's, God's not sufficient, you need to smoke dope. That's, God's not sufficient, you need to cheat on your wife. God's not sufficient, you need to go gambling. God's not sufficient, you need to do something. So God's not sufficient, so you rationalize that you deserve this. This is a behavior that you need to fulfill something in your life. When that begins to happen, when you start mapping out how you are going to sin, you are this close to sinning. Do you understand what I'm saying? Here's the external. That's the devil throwing the temptation at you. Here's the internal. That's the latent lust within you. And when you start rationalizing, that is the pull of those two things about to come together. When you rationalize your sin that way, you are allowing those poles to contact one another. They are magnetized. And if they get close... They're going to burst sin. And you, in your rationalization, brought them together. Because you could have, in your rationalization, said, oh, no way in the world am I going to go that way because it's going to destroy my family or it's going to destroy my life or I'm going to lose my job. You could put all kinds of things in there, but in that moment, you're allowing that latent internal desire within you to get so close to that external temptation that they just come together. The final steps. What does this look like? First, the method of sin. Notice what it says there in in verse 15, the second part. And sin when it is finished. External desire, latent lust, come together, they burst sin. And sin when it's finished. Sin is never a good thing. You're not going to feel better. You're not going to act better. You're not going to look better. There's nothing good that's going to come into your life. Sin is always destructive, but the devil tells you otherwise. Sin, when it's finished, notice what it says. When it's complete, what does it do? 
it brings forth death. A little chunk of you dies with sin. A piece of you. And this is not talking about your positional place in Christ justified by the Lamb as a believer. This isn't talking about you losing your salvation. This is talking about your day-by-day, momentary, sanctifying relationship with God, that relational sin that needs relational forgiveness. When you sin against God, who loves you infinitely, a little bit of you dies. A little bit of your relationship with the Lord dies. Good news is it can be regenerated through forgiveness. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive it and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? But a piece of you in the moment of sin dies. Guilt, shame. Look at Eve again. What happened? They didn't even know they were naked initially. Shame and guilt came to both Adam and Eve through sin. Sin always brings shame and guilt. It may be just a little bit. It may be a whole bunch. But a little bit of you dies. It matures then. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and takes up a larger part of your life until the third part of this, you begin to be mastered by your temptation. The mastery of that thing that tempts you, it becomes full grown. And so James writes, don't be deceived. You're not going to be immune to this process. And so because you're not immune to the process, you have to do something about what you have control over. What do you have control over? Do you have control over whether the devil tempts you or not? No, you don't. Do you have control over whether inside of you there is actually residing still some latent behavioral ability to sin? No, you don't. You have a sin nature. Those two things you cannot control. But what can you control? What you do with them and how far apart you keep them. That's your will. That's where your will comes into play. Your mind. That's why we call it a battleground. Your mind is the battleground of victory. That's where you win and lose the battle over sin. And the more you engage in behaviors that say yes to Jesus and no to the devil, the more victory you have. But if you engage in behaviors that say, well, I, I think these things can, you know, they can kind of get close together. I don't know how many of you have been to the edge of the Grand Canyon on the South Rim, but as you walk around the, the trail that's there, it's paved path that goes basically all the way along the whole South Rim, where, where there's people anyway. There are spots where if you were to stumble and fall, you're just like, you're going to plummet five, six hundred feet straight to your death. You ever noticed the people that are just like, They got their selfie stick. That's your pastor, by the way. Because taking photos isn't a sin. But for purpose of illustration here, what's the problem? 
If I fall to my death, what's the problem? I got too close to the cliff. It shouldn't stun anybody that I plummeted to my death. Why? Because in my mind, I had the capacity to go, that's dangerous, that can kill me, the photo's going to be the same from over here. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, I can still see it. Now I got two feet. Here I got two feet over the chasm. That's where the battle is lost. That's where it's won. It's deciding not to get too close to that cliff. It's deciding, hey, that could kill me. It's deciding that if I make a mistake, if I'm not uber careful, that me being that close to that thing which is external and the internal thing in me comes together, there could be a moment when I plunge into the sin, death. That's what we have to deal with in our minds. A classic example of that, and you can see it in the life of, of Samson, he takes the Nazarite vow. He's, he's like this, he's like Hulk. Samson is this figure, he's just like, he laughs at battles. He's like, I'm just going to go out and, you know, bring your whole army. I'll kill him by myself. But where does he fail? With Delilah. He's fighting whole armies by himself, but he fails when it comes to Delilah. Why? Oh, Samson, you're so strong. So handsome. She was a heathen. He was an Israelite, a Nazarite. He should have gone, sweetie, you know, you know, until we get this God thing squared away, there ain't no thing here. You and me, we ain't a thing. But that didn't happen. He entertained that relationship, and before you know it, he's chained to the pillars of the palace, blind and powerless. That's what sin does when you entertain it. It chains you to something immovable, and it wants to kill you. He thought, well, man, it's just going to be some little adult games with Delilah. It's going to be okay. What could go wrong? You know, after all, we're two consenting adults, and we're in the privacy of the the palace. It's going to be fine. You can almost hear him. You can hear the justification. You can hear the insinuation. How did it work out? Death. His mortal enemies over whom he had victory mocked him as he died. They mocked him. Ha! The Philistines are going, yeah! And behind them, the devil's going, yeah! And Samson's going, oh no, God, I failed you. Why? He flirted with the distance between the external temptation and the internal lust. He allowed that gap to close. And he put himself in a situation that he should have never been in. 
Sin matures. It grows. It never gets smaller. It always wants more room in your life. It may begin small. You might think it's just a little compromise, something that, ah, this will never get me. I'm not going to end up in a bad place because of this. We actually have a bumper sticker that says Humpty Dumpty was pushed. You ever seen that one? It's kind of funny. I kind of looked at it, and then I realized what it was saying. No, it's actually, it's actually saying that Humpty Dumpty had no part in his own demise. Humpty Dumpty was a dude made out of an egg. He shouldn't have been on top of a wall. Amen? It's pretty simple. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall because he was on the wall. He had a choice. He didn't have to be up there. And you don't have to be up there either. I want to share with you, remind yourself, you can download these things later, so unless you write really fast, you'll never probably scribble all these down. But there is a pathway or a cycle to sin. And it's very simply laid out in the Bible. Temptation occurs and I don't fight it. That's the mind. You can have victory right there. You don't have to go past step one. Step two, it appeals to something that's already inside of you. There's the father and the mother together at the top of the list. It's there. Devil's going to try and tempt you. You have to tell him no. And the latent sin within you is trying to say, you really want this. But I begin to entertain my thoughts. And thus I make that choice. I allow those things to come together in my mind. Now I start walking the direction of sin. It begins to occupy more and more of my time. Things happen in my life. It's just like, okay, what was a a a once-a-month thing now becomes a a once-a-week thing, and then it becomes a a once-a-day thing, and then before you know it, it's put you in prison. Your conscience automatically begins to warn you because you are in Christ, right? As a believer, the Holy Spirit warning sounds are going, eh, 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 reject. But now you've already allowed them to come together, and so you ignore your conscience. You begin to suppress what you know to be true. You've read it in the Word. You know the Bible says, I shouldn't do this. But you go that direction anyway. I'm not going to do what I know to be right. I'm going to do what I know to be wrong, even though I know the Word says otherwise. And right there in the middle, now you're stuck in committing that sin. And then here's what happens. The last half of this is really sad because you become desensitized to it. That's why when I talk to people who have been married twice, sometimes it ends up three, sometimes it ends up four, ends up five, six, seven, eight times. Not, Not because there aren't reasons legitimately why a divorce could happen in God's eyes, but it's always an allowance for sin. And so it becomes easier the second time. It becomes easier still the third time. The same thing is true with every behavioral thing that you can think of that's sin. Eventually, I'm just so desensitized to it, I don't even care anymore. And then it becomes a habit. Now it's actually part of who you are. If you were to take that out of your life, you wouldn't even be you. That's why you find people that sin in the area of drunkenness and alcohol. Where do you find them? Bars, parties. It becomes their life. You take that out of their life, they don't have a life. 
then it starts to take the highest priority. You know what happens to Christians that do that? They cut themselves off from God. They cut themselves off from the Word. They cut themselves off from prayer. They cut themselves off from fellowship. They cut themselves off from church. Why? Shame and guilt, generally. Now it becomes my number one priority. It actually becomes another God. How many gods did Jesus say you could have at one time? One. No one can serve two masters. He will love the one and hate the other. He'll hate the one and love the other. No one can love God and mammon. So whether it's money or any other thing, sin becomes an idol. It becomes a false god. Now my life is enslaved to that idol. It's what happened to the Israelites, right? They're carrying around their little idols wherever they go. They're, they're worshiping Yahweh. God's in a pillar of fire and a cloud in the tabernacle in front of them. And they've got in their pockets, they've got little gods. Shamed of it. You know where they found them? They just recently unearthed. You can go to, when you go to Jerusalem, you can go to the Israel National Archives to the Museum of Antiquities, and there are over 3,500 little tiny gods ranging, ranging from about three inches tall to about 12 inches tall that were found in Jewish settlements. They had their idols, and they had Yahweh. Never works. Now I'm locked into a way of, a way of life. That sin begets other sins. And before you know it, the wages of sin is death. I'm dead spiritually. I might be dead physically. I'm certainly dead spiritually. And personally, I don't know whether that person was ever saved or not. That's where you lose your assurance of your salvation. It's like I'm so lost in my sin, am I even a believer? If I have no victory in my life, how can I claim the victory that I have in Christ? So church, take these principles and remember it is so simple. Sin is defeated in the gap that is the womb of your human will that is in your mind between the external temptation of the devil and the latent and internal part of you that it's is a sin nature, has a sin nature. That battle is won right there. And if you resist the devil, he will flee. We're going to learn that principle later. It's one in your mind. That's where you win that battle against temptation. Don't miss the opportunity to be victorious by toying with things that shouldn't be in the mind of a believer. Just stand with me and we'll pray. I'm going to invite some pastors up front in case there's someone. You're here tonight and you're struggling with something. You just want to get, look, it is this simple. You can walk out of here tonight and you can leave what you came with here at the foot of the cross. It's not a complex issue, but you have to be ready to fight for it. If you're unwilling to fight for it, then it's just going to come back. You're going to say, get out, 
and the devil's going to say, well, I'll repackage it and send it back tomorrow. You're going to get a new thing from Amazon, Devil Direct. But you can be free of it. And you can walk in victory. And you can have that power by the Holy Spirit to resist that sin. But you have to fight the battle. It's not going to be automatic. That part's on you. God wants it, but you've got to want it as much as he wants it. So if you've got something you need to get rid of, do it tonight. Leave this place in victory, walking in righteousness, free of those things that bind. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you. The greater is he who is in us than he who is in this world. The devil may be powerful, but Lord Jesus, you are mighty through your word under the tearing down of the strongholds of the wicked one. And Lord, I want to pray for anyone that's here tonight. First, maybe the the step that they haven't taken is they don't know you, and so they don't have any victory over their sin. Your word says that if we confess there in 1 John 1, 9, our sins, that you will forgive our sins and cleanse us from the unrighteousness that's in us. But that starts at the cross. It starts saying yes to the sacrifice that you made for us. And so, Lord, there may be some that need to give their life to you tonight. There may be some that have been living dual lives, Lord. They've been living lives of sin on one side and playing church on the other. There's godliness in one side of their life and there's heinous sin on the other. Lord, you are quick to forgive and your grace is available to us if we'll repent and ask you, Lord, to take these things from us. You'll do that and you'll give us power to overcome. And so I pray for those that would really need to just do some business with you tonight. And for those of us that are doing well, but we know the enemy still is there in our lives raging against us, And we have things inside of us that pop their ugly heads up every once in a while. God, help us to have that hammer and just beat them back, Lord, that they wouldn't surface, that there'd be no temptation to allow those things to fester and to bring forth any kind of sin in our lives. God, help us to hate sin the way you hate sin. Lord, thank you for the power that we have over temptation. Help us to acquire a distaste for sin the way you distastefully hate sin, Lord. You hate sin because it kills your kids. And so, Lord, help us to be free of it. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the power that we have through the Holy Spirit because of who we are in Christ to evade this temptation towards sin that lies within us. So bless us, Lord, as we go our way. We ask all this in the mighty name of the all-sufficient Savior. Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.